Before we get to this week's podcast, I want to tell you about Digiday Plus. That's our premium membership product, and it gets you Digiday Magazine. We just finished uh, our issue, our last issue of the year, and a steady stream of exclusive research about the industry. You'll also be part of our Digiday Plus Slack community and exclusive member events. So we recently held a live podcast uh, with Lindsay Nelson, and we're doing another one in January with Howard Mittman, the CRO of the Bleacher Report. So if you are not a member, please sign up. Uh, go to digiday.com. You'll see Digiday Plus tab there. It is only $395 a year, but for you, our podcast listeners, we have a discount. Enter the code podcast at checkout and you will get 25% off. That is podcast. Again, go to digiday.com and go to the tab at the top that says Digiday Plus. Brand is more important than it's ever been. Companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is. Welcome to Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This is our last episode of 2017. And so we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we are going to have a recap of what we thought to be the five big themes that emerged for publishing this year um, and the challenges that everyone tackled or failed to, as, as it were. Anyway, we are going to start off where else but with Facebook. 2017 was a year when Facebook emerged as the preeminent media gatekeeper. And two guests uh, stood out for their discussions of publishers making their own way from Facebook. One was Bloomberg Media CEO Justin Smith, and the other one was Cheddar's John Steinberg. Um, here's what Justin had to say about platforms like Facebook. The platforms are beginning to show, in my view, a few clear vulnerabilities. Um, first of all, look, look what's happened across the last six months, the election and the rise of fake news on Facebook, you know, four out of the five most trafficked Facebook stories tied to the election were fake. Unbelievable. And that, the, the, the implications for our democracy and for our election obviously are huge, but just imagine the, the, the erosion of trust that's, that so many people have felt, both as consumers and, co and, and commercial partners, as a result of that. And it's not being resolved quickly enough. It's not being resolved. And some argue it's not resolvable given this neutral intermediary position that platforms have taken. Also, how many of you have heard, have heard, heard CMOs say that the hyper micro-targeting that the platforms offer, which is great for performance-based advertising, is actually not as effective for broadening the brand funnel when you're looking at brand advertising. So there's been a slight backlash there. And finally, I think, Publish, the platforms are also realizing that content and great content from brands is actually the engine of much of the platform's engagement. As they've seen individual sharing decline, on, particularly on the Facebook platform. And you're seeing, I think, for the first time from some of the platforms, you're seeing some, some concessions, some more flexibility. You're seeing the beginnings of a more partnerly approach, a more equitable approach, hopefully, down the line. Um, from what's been in the past, which has been, frankly, they've gotten all the, basically, they've gotten our content, they've gotten our money, and they've gotten the largest, some of the largest uh, market caps in the history of business on the back of that. 
John Steinberg, on the other hand, is building what he calls the post-cable network. But interestingly, he's wary of doing that on Facebook, even as others around him were rushing headlong into Facebook in the hopes of uh, getting in front of its billion-plus users. Here's what John had to say. Sling is the deal that I'm most excited and I'm most proud of. I believe strongly in this idea of neighborhooding. If our content is on Facebook and it gets put adjacent to things exploding and salacious content and people in bathing suits, we're not going to win. It, we're providing serious business news. We had two U.S. senators on this week. If we are put on a dial next to Bloomberg and CNN, we are going to win the portion of the audience that wants to see more tech, media, younger people, startups, gadgets. We're going to mm -hmm. win there. It's like putting produce in the snack aisle. Like it's not going to work. I'm very happy with the size of our audience on Twitter. I'm very happy with the size of our audience on Sling. I'm happy with the size of our audience on Amazon. I'm happy with our audience on Pluto. Facebook, I struggle with. You know what? Uh, you're dealing with an algorithm which is so wild and so unpredictable and so driven by somebody turning a dial. I try not to get obsessed about it because I know that it's not real. And I try to put ourselves, I try to quickly get onto other platforms that are more real, more reliable, and more sensical. I mean, when I see the stuff that goes crazy on Facebook, it's a woman getting a tattoo, okay? Or it is something exploding, or it's a counter that people are voting on. And when my interview, our live interview with Bob Casey, you know, senator, uh, you know, a senator coming out to talk, and, and that's not performing as well as, uh, you know, that nonsense, yeah. it's hard to get worked up about. The other thing, too, is that we're building a Facebook page at a time where people don't like Facebook pages anymore, right? So most of the people that have Facebook pages that are two, eight, 10 million fans on it built those pages a generation ago. It's a bit like YouTube, right? Try going and building a YouTube channel with millions of subscribers. So instead, that's why I focus on Sling and Amazon and other people that I'm not gonna disclose and being a really good partner to them because they need really good partners. Facebook doesn't really need anything. You can't talk about Facebook without talking about the pivot to video. Um, I think we struck a pretty good chord in being skeptical about this move from the start. Henry Blodgett was on the podcast, and he warned publishers not to lose sight of all else that digital media is good for. For video, for us, we've been in the video business for seven years. I think that a lot of the folks who are embracing it now are going to have a rude awakening. It's very difficult, so it's not like it can suddenly save a print business that is not working. So we built a big web video business over three to five years. Then social came along and we said, oh, that's great. Folks on the web love our videos. They're going to love them on social too. And we put them on social and nobody watched them. And we said, hey, wait, what's going on here? And we realized that actually social is very different. It's another And these were like talking mechanism. head videos? Yes, exactly. Okay. Those were working well. It, I mean, video, the key difference between video and text is you want to show people things. And I think the other point about the pivot to video right now is people are talking as if the future is just going to be video. It's crazy. The future is going to be everything. It is going to be text. Text, photos, audio, and video. And I think the media brands of the future will do them all extremely well. And here's Rich Antonello, CEO of Complex, pouring some additional cold water on the pivot to video as a strategy. Rich's podcast, by the way, was our most popular of the year. I was convinced that we had such a powerful network and it was such an exclusive play that we didn't need YouTube to get into video. Okay. And uh, when we went hard into it into two th in 2012, um, we tried to do it without YouTube. Were you just putting a bright cove? No, well, we. Player <laughs> or something? 
Jesus Christ. We had Uyala, right? <laughs> okay, and okay. Uh, we did have our own, and it was proprietary. But we did we produced a lot of very good content, and we tried to. And ch- very few people saw it. And and. and not as many. Not as a, nowhere near as many. As, that's right. Okay. Nowhere near. Nowhere near as many as should have. And what I realized is YouTube can be both a content consumption platform and a discovery platform for you. And I had underestimated how important the social networks were. Like that was that was a learning lesson for me to look back of what we just discussed in 07, 08, and 09 with the organic uh, discovery that we got from social. Right. Right. So it opened my eyes and realized like we need them as a partner. Um, it's a different audience on their platform that consumes video vertically, um, you know, by topic, but also it's just, it's just video. It was mm-hmm. one of the few places that was just video at that time from a digital perspective. And also it was very young and our content is very young, right? We dominate 18 to 24, 18 to 24 is where our key segment is versus a lot of other people that are really 25 to 34 or even older than that. Sure. So we're really low end of millennials, early Gen Z. We have three massive feeders for our platform, right? YouTube is huge for us, and we have multiple, multiple channels on YouTube. We also have a very a collective-oriented MCN. It's not it's not an MCN in a general sense where we have thousands of partners. We have 40 or 50 partners. We monetize the hell out of it, uh, and we do a great job. YouTube's a great partner of ours, but it's literally, we use it as more of an er- unearthing the best talent. So we have guys like Fomer Simpson, who is... Yes, Fomer Simpson, yeah. who is a sneakerhead, who it. is amazing. And we use him in, on our programming. We promote the hell out of his uh, vertical. And we use that to feed into our complex news on a related basis. Basically, we're running the same play we did from a partner network now sure. from a video perspective just through the MCN. Okay. And Makes, then Facebook. Facebook's got to be the next one. Facebook is big, but we actually have a monster, our own platform. And we, you know, we have a, an awful lot of views that occur on our own platform. So oh, the owned platform is still important for... Tremendously. I mean, it's contributing a significant percentage of our videos, views. So explain why Facebook is not like the... the, Oh, it's third. I mean, it's up there. Yeah, but it's not... For most people, it's like number one, two, and then three. Well, you know, we we do a little bit of making specific formats for Facebook. We don't do it to the degree most people do. Okay. Um, You got to remember, a lot of those views happen without sound, too, by the way. Yes. So... Most people don't talk about that, but I, you know, you have to, you have to, what, what kind of grade do you give that? Do you put that as a par of somebody who came in, pressed click, didn't press skip on a commercial, watched that whole video with sure. sound? Like, is that an equal to a three second view of uh, a non, no. sa- non-sound scrollable no, mobile? clearly view? isn't. The third big theme that emerged was the shift to direct consumer revenue in the form of subscriptions. The biggest success case on this front has been the New York Times, which has over 3.5 million digital subscribers now. Times COO Meredith Levine joined us to discuss the impact this has had on how the Times operates its business. Most people pay for the New York Times on a monthly basis, so we watch churn month over month over month. And in general, and we've said this on our earnings calls, part of the power in our numbers has been power in the positive results has been we're actually improving churn. So month over month over month over month, we are improving churn. And we're doing that because we're getting better at behaving like a consumer business and a modern consumer business. We've got a big, I think we have 250 people between our Um, what we call consumer revenue, which is our our, um, part of our marketing organization Mm -hmm. and brand. And they are incredibly focused on onboarding people 
at understanding high-risk moments when somebody might leave the times that usually has to do with a lack of engagement. We are coming to understand the role that number of days visited plays um, versus your um, depth. So how deeply do you read in a topic, which is what I think you're getting at, and also how much variety. News is a relationship business. What the the fake news crisis, which we should also talk about, exposed was the importance of news being a relationship business, a relationship where the creator, the provider of the news is... Um, gets enough value from the mm-hmm. consumer that um, he or she can can keep providing that level of quality and for the consumer that the relationship value goes up over time. Everyone wants to be, a, you know, there, there is no better or more sustainable business model on the planet than making a product that individual people love and want to pay money for. Mm-hmm. So to have that, I always say, you know, sum up the whole business model of the New York Times in five words, make something worth paying for. That is obviously, you know, very positive if you're a journalist at the New York Times. That is obviously a part of what you want to do to be so valued that you're distinct from the free alternatives. Um, that is great for the consumer business because it's a galvanizing force to get that number from 3 million to 10 million and on beyond that. But it's good for the ad business because what do advertisers they want? They want to be associated with brands people love. They want to be associated with consumer products that are actually relevant. And they want deeply engaged audiences who are going to spend time on a platform and engage with their ads. And for the ad team, there's no better, more differentiated thing to go to market with mm-hmm. than we're brand and a, bit, a product that individual, millions of individual people love and engage yeah. with. The New York Times future depends on being a large, a very large paying consumer business. And we are betting the commercial future on our ability to do that through the differentiation of our journalism, through the differentiation of our quality mm-hmm. in every space that we play. So in. it seems like and that, we, that's the right. point the, I was making. The ad business, I expect over time, will be smaller than the it is today, smaller than the right. consumer business. And we we are not. Um, I was also making the point that we because we don't have to chase scale. Because we are not, you know, we don't have to have a billion or two billion or three billion dollar ad business. By the way, I'm very happy to have one. Sure. Very happy to have one. But because that's not a requirement of the model, I think we make a better product. I think our journalists never have to choose between quality or how to direct your attention. One of the best things about the New York Mm -hmm. Times, this was a huge learning for me when I got there, is like we don't move audience around in support of advertising. You know, we move audience around to direct people's attention to the things that matter. And that is like, like, I do not know too many other places that have an ad business that can Mm -hmm. run that way. Also, early on the year, we had the On the Information's Jessica Lesson. She's been a prominent advocate of publications going down the paid route. And she made the compelling case on why doing this uh, lines up in everyone's interests. Yeah. And and I think the one more point on this, because I could go on for a long time, but it depends what kind of business you're building, right? So I've, I've also been very critical of um, startups out there in the media world that have venture money that has expectations of huge growth um, in raw numbers, because that's what gets you in the mode of, you know, yeah. I need six things to contribute to it. So, so one of the reasons that I can say we don't need six things right now is because 
I can honestly decide to grow the part of the business that I think is more important for our sustainability. So that's that's the other equation. You know, not everyone's in the driver's seat. The reason we're called the information is because I think what we think of as news often breaks down to into information and entertainment. And I think, you know, the celebrity stuff is entertainment, but frankly, so is the like 17th take on Donald Trump's latest tweet that doesn't tell you anything new. I think that's entertainment. That's not, um, you know, I, I even hesitate to call that news in some way. And this is obviously, you know, a, a complicated thing, but, but I think there's, the stuff we read when we're bored and we're clicking through to kind of, um, you know, waste some time and, and be entertained. And then there's the stuff we read because it's actually useful to us. Because technology is literally upending every industry, every area of business, every discipline, um, you know, I think that's a huge market. And, and I just, we could, feels like a year ago, two years ago, this whole conversation was around who's going to actually pay. And thankfully, I, I think the conversation is actually shifting because, you know, people are paying for Spotify, they're paying for Netflix, they're paying for incremental over the top video services, right? And, and, and I think we sort of underestimate the reader or the consumer if we think they don't know the difference between stuff that's valuable to them and stuff that's not. And so um, we're, we're really happy riding this wave. And, and I think it's changing in the people who wonder if people are paying will pay or are frankly just missing out because because yeah. they are paying i believe that every publication would be healthier if it started from the perspective of what is so valuable that i can offer that someone would be willing to pay for it um <laughs> i don't believe that like you know every article on buzzfeed should be a subscription i don't believe that there is information out there you know shouldn't be information that's out there that's free or anything like that but it's about a mentality. You know, having started a new startup three years ago, I know when, you, when you're sitting down with that, hopefully not too blank piece of paper, you have to make a decision. Are you going to go win over advertisers? Or are you going to go win over readers? And those are very, very different decisions. And um, you, mm -hmm. you can't really, they're, they're just different. Subscriptions aren't the only way to diversify. Commerce has emerged as a key theme throughout the year in our various podcasts. One of the most interesting, if unlikely, cases is Barstool Sports, the bro sports comedy site. Barstool CEO Erica Nardini joined us, and she explained why revenue diversification is not just a preferable, preferable route, but it's also an existential requirement for publishers. I will never be totally dependent on advertising as part okay. of this company's business model for precisely what we're talking about yeah. because so we'll have a muzzle. You, you do a fair bit of commerce, it mm -hmm. seems like that. We I mean, do a ton sell, of commerce. And you, you create these things very quickly, mm -hmm. it seems like. You know, someone does something during a game and then all of a sudden you got some t-shirt up. Sure. Like you know, last night or Sunday night during the Super Bowl, PFT commenter, which is, you know, he's one of our our most talented he's he's brilliantly talented he is a great satire artist he came up you know he tweeted out uh the immaculate gritception and we had that in the barstool store that was the edelman catch yeah okay. yeah exactly within an hour and i would say brian that that is what makes us different overall something happens we're on it 
in an mm-hmm. hour, whether it's going live on Facebook, whether it's producing a video series, whether it's writing a blog, whether it's making a piece of merch. And that matters because we are constant. It's a We're fearless in terms of pace and there's no, you know, most things we do, we take one take. And it's one take for a piece of content. It's one take for a piece of merchandise, a t-shirt or whatever. And that makes us very fast. It also makes us very formidable because we don't have the, we're not encumbered by process and and perfection and packaging and mm-hmm. and so what percentage of like what's the revenue breakdown between advertising merchandise so merchandise and other? historically you know advertising will be about fifty percent of our revenue okay uh, maybe less depending on how much Is that a good or a bad thing it's a great thing okay uh, depending on how much I grow the licensing business um, merchandise is minimum of a third of our business. Hmm. Um, and I like that mix. And when I was, um, when I was looking at Barstool, the diversification of the revenue model was one of the most attractive things to me, because I think that a brand that has a diverse, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a question in media right now about independent publishers and small publishers and how they survive. And I don't think you survive in this day and age strictly on an ad model. My point of view is that most media companies are B2B companies. They're not actually direct-to-consumer companies. How do you mean that? I mean that where when you look at uh, Barstool is strictly focused on our audience. Like that is, that's where our heart is. That's where our eyes are. That's where our focus is. And it shows if you look at, you know, if you look at, any tweet we put out or posts we put out, we have direct-to-consumer feedback, and that's our orientation. When you look at companies, like I even saw it when I was at AOL, right, where you would have a tweet or a post from Ariana for Huffington Post, and she is a huge, huge figure. The engagement on that is actually very low. Mm-hmm. And if you go look at major media companies and what the interaction is on a consumer level, on a per piece of content basis, it's not there. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content and actively engaging with it, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. That is a theme that also came up with Roger Narasetti, the CEO of Gizmodo Media Group, which is pushing uh, various revenue streams in order to uh, strike the balance that Raju thinks that publishers need in a market that constantly changes. I mean, my view is that most media companies need to have anywhere between three and six different streams of revenue. And the way to look at it is that there is always going to be display. There's always increasingly going to be programmatic. There's going to be, you know, revenue around subscriptions. There's going to be revenue around events and offline related things. And there's going to be commerce. And for us, we don't have subscriptions yet, um, but we have everything else. I mean, this year, I'm expecting my revenues to be up probably about 30% if all goes well uh, or as planned. And it's an interesting split. Uh, 20% of my revenue is display. 20% is programmatic. Um, there's a probably a 10 to 15 percent of video because we need to ramp that up. Um, but 25 percent of my revenue is going to be around commerce. Uh, 
So I think that's the balance you're looking for. So you're not dependent on one or the other in a disproportionate mm-hmm. way. And that's the mix that I think most media companies are trying to go. I mean, there is a reason why the New York Times spent $30 million or so to buy Wirecutter, right? Mm-hmm. Because they see that as an opportunity. Of course, the challenge is going to be how do you take a pure commerce brand like that and make sure that the rest of your New York Times audience is also willing to embrace that. It's easier said than done. I think the biggest lesson for us, and uh, they've been doing this now for about four years, so there's a significant head start, uh, is that content-led commerce is the only way for media companies to make commerce work. By that I mean that the commerce needs to follow interesting content or interesting stories or news you can use, and that gives the rationale for somebody to actually transact. So a lot of the commerce at Uh, on our sites is led by interesting stories about uh, performance of a product or our own audience is telling us kind of what works for them and what doesn't and then having the affiliate links to complete the loop. How is this different from just an affiliate, just putting affiliate links on your page? In a few ways. I mean, there is a whole um, reader engagement that is pretty amazing. I mean, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, we asked a question about what genes do you like best, right? And there were like 850 readers who actually then participated in kind of telling us what they like. And that then leads us back to talk about, okay, so it looks like these three or four genes seem to be the ones that seem to kind of people seem to like. And then we do have, you know, obviously the commerce links if somebody wants to buy it. So it it is led by both a discovery element and readers kind of saying what worked for them and what hasn't. We also do a lot of posts which are simply around bringing the same level of honesty, if you will, to product conversations. For example, if you want to buy a nose hair trimmer, we will tell you that these... Why are you looking at me when you're saying that? You and I have that issue, right? (laughs) Facial hair. This is a podcast. There's a reason this is a podcast. Um, (laughs) And so, um, and for us to be able to say, look, if you only have $20 to spend... Here are three things you can buy out of which two are really not very good, but the third one seems to work because our audience says they like it. I think bringing that transparency and being able to kind of talk about products just like you talk about a story and be critical about things is what kind of adds value. Mm -hmm. And finally, and this shouldn't be underestimated at all, we now have four years of pricing data because we've been doing this for a while. So when one of my editors in the commerce team says, this particular video game player is available today for $32 and you will never see this low ever. This is based on data and that drives a lot of purchase because people trust us to kind of say these guys know what they're talking about. And last but not least, there's a question of scale. Jim Vandehei, the founder of Axios, joined us to talk about how powerful media models can be built that aren't necessarily reliant on billions of page views or video views. The more we learned about business, the more we understood it. The true testament of a success is something that can outlive the founders. There's a lot of media companies right now that do well because of their founders, but you take them out of it mm-hmm. and you wonder if that company still survives. Well, you're not really building a brand. You're not really building a brand. Yeah. Like what happens to Vox if Ezra is not there? Or what happens to BuzzFeed if Ben is not there? And they might might thrive, and both of them have built good businesses, so they probably are at the point where they they would thrive. But for us, we never wanted to leave until we knew it could. 
about two, three years ago, it was very clear we had a durable, scalable business model so we could start to think about what's next. Long way of getting to Axios. We decided we wanted to do something different. I knew I didn't want it just to be in politics because a decade later, it was not enough anymore to just be really smart in politics, even if your obsession is politics. That if you think about where the world is going, where all growth will come, where all conflict will come, where all new businesses will come from, it'll be the collision of politics, technology, business, and what we call media trends. And mm-hmm. I'd probably throw science into that as well. And when I say media trends, I'm not talking about Katie Couric's contract. I'm talking about How do people consume and disseminate information? And to me, and it's something you guys spend a lot of time thinking about, it is the perhaps the most important piece and the least understood piece when you think about tech and you think about politics and you think about uh, business. And so that's what we wanted to do. I think a lot of media is a mirage. A lot of these companies are privately held. Everyone has lots of bravado. You don't really know what's working and what's not working. So I'm, uh, I'm big on like digging into the numbers and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. The thing that disturbed me over the last five years is that for reasons you just suggested and others, because people didn't have a business model, everyone made the bet, and I think most of them made the wrong bet, that I just want numbers. I want as big an audience as humanly possible. I want, give me as many page views as I can get. The minute that you make that decision, particularly on social media, you've now made the deal with the devil. To get as many people as you possibly want, you have to, you have to reach the lowest common denominator. Yeah. All of us know exactly how to get the most clicks. And because so many people did that, they basically cheapened their brand, they cheapened their content, they cheapened their audience. And the truth is, the gig's up. They didn't make more money off of it because guess what? Everyone else did it. And yeah. the laws of supply and demand kicked in. And everybody yes. had tons of inventory. Well, I, and you're yeah. throwing it through these third parties that are giving you a penny or an ad. And that doesn't really add up unless you get more and more uh, page views. So then you go, here, let's do more, let's do more, let's do more. Next thing you know, you have something that I think is of no value uh, to the consumer and therefore long-term is not that valuable as a brand. And finally, to close things out, we have Josh Tobolsky of The Outline. Uh, he talked about how differentiation, not scale, is what's most important in the long run. If your goal is just raw numbers, like that doesn't mean anything. That just means like you now you're just growing to get to scale. Scale is, scale is like this strange... A, a proposition i mean because on the internet there's like three billion people on the internet who knows where the limit to your scale is right if you don't know your audience and don't know what a what a profitable audience size might look like or what kind of people you want to talk to or you only have a vague idea about it and you go well can we get to two million can we get to 10 million can we get to 20 i think that that becomes a very difficult way to run a business where you're not compromising well i mean everything about digital media is insanely boring i mean i mean it it is everything looks the same everything reads the same everybody writes the same stories i mean i made a joke last night because you know during the super bowl you know stranger things there was a stranger things trailer and within 15 minutes i looked at my feedly and there's like 25 stranger things season two trailer premieres during the super bowl and it's like it i understand see this is what i'm talking about with traffic like yeah i could have written the stranger things story and gotten a bunch of traffic on it I've got a bunch of Twitter followers. We have some, you know, decent Facebook followers and Twitter followers. If I'd have written the story and put it up very quickly, which I'm very good at, we would have gotten a bunch of traffic for it because it's low-hanging fruit. Anybody can yeah. do it. John Ho- Oliver uh, sort of highlight clips. 
Yeah. Everybody does it. Right. Uh, the hardest thing is to say no, which is what we were trying to do. And I'm not, I, I don't have an ego about this. It's just, it's just a different path. You know, the path is like, I believe that an audience that was raised on Buzzfeed and raised on the iPhone and has been, has seen this shit for 10 years is getting numb to it. And they're getting, they're, they're getting smarter. Mm-hmm. They're getting savvier. They're getting a little bit older. Um, and you know, there's a whole, if you look at the Snapchat generation, whole different world for them, completely different, um, uh, way of thinking about and operating in the digital world. I think for, for the generation that has gone through the last, you know, started as like a teenager and is now in like their adult life, the internet isn't the same place it was 10 years ago, or at least their reaction to it isn't the same. And I think, following this election, following all of the stuff about fake news and seeing how easy it is to get to, to be sifted through to the front page of Facebook or the, or in your Twitter feed and Mm -hmm. to not know the difference. I think something else has to matter for me. I wanted to go not surprisingly more focused. And I think Mm -hmm. that, that other people there wanted to go much bigger, which they've done. And, and for me, that's very boring. I just think it's very, it's a very boring. Why is it boring? I, I mean, there's getting big to get big is not, Mm-hmm. to me is not like I don't need to be the biggest brand yeah. in the world like in fact the biggest brands in the world are less interesting as far as I'm concerned they're and they're not by the way they've balanced this a lot that's all from us at the Digiday podcast in 2017 we hope you enjoyed uh, our podcast this year our producer has been Aditi Sangal Aditi thank you very much for all your hard work and we'll be back uh, next year with many exciting guests please do stay tuned. In the meantime, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play and subscribe to Digiday Podcast. A great gift you can give us is to go to iTunes or any of these places and rate us and leave a review, ideally a positive one. Um, If you want to leave a five-star review, I will read this on the podcast. You can always uh, write uh, to me at uh, brian at digiday.com or tweet at me. Um, and I look forward to hearing from you. And thanks again for listening. Happy New Year.